The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to This is Catholicism on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Jason Guardiana, and on this episode, I'm joined by Father Philip Eldrucker. Welcome, Father. Thank you for joining us, and congratulations on your recent ordination to the priesthood here at Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. Uh, Welcome. Thank you very much, and hello. Uh, We continue on uh, This is Catholicism, where Bishop Sanborn left off in the Harps Catechism, which is in part one on faith, chapter two, the chief truths of faith, and now the seventh article, from thence you shall come to judge the living and the dead. We invite you to follow along if you have the book. There is a link to the PDF in the episode notes. Question one is, what does the seventh article of the creed teach us? The seventh article of the creed concerns the the general judgment, the the end of the world, essentially, everything that is connected with that, uh, you could assume, you could condense in that the, all of the events leading up to the end of the world, the end of the world itself, the final judgment, and the sentence that is going to be imposed on everyone at the general judgment. Question two is, what do you call this judgment? As well as the text says, it is called the general judgment, the, the last judgment or the judgment of the world, and the reasons being that it's general because it's going to cover everything, uh, every person, every place, every circumstance, every time throughout human history from the creation of the world until the last human being dies on earth. It's called the last because after it there's, there's no reason for any further judgment. Everyone has been judged and the sentence imposed has, is eternal. You're after the general judgment, you are either in hell or in heaven. And there's no going back from essentially either judgment, you're either in hell forever or you're in heaven forever. So there's no need for a further judgment, so it's called the last judgment. It's called the judgment of the world because the entire world will be present. All of the human beings from Adam and Eve until the last human being ever will be present. So it will be an enormous, an enormous group of people, and it will it will be the entire human race there. So if we consider humans to to make up the world, it is the judgment of the world. And that more on that will come in later questions. Uh, the third question is: When will the day of judgment of the world come? This, I suppose, is a fairly hot topic. Everyone's interested in this one way or the other, I suppose. But the, the answer is, is that we don't know. There, there, is, no, there is no way of knowing the, the day the la- of the Last Judgment. Uh, you can't even say the, the year or the, the millennium, the century. All of that is actually too specific. 
Christ himself has told us that no one knows the, the, the day of the, the general judgment. And so if someone were to, to assume that they know the day, which I think is a fairly common thing these days, is people preach that they, they're the ones who know when the last judgment is going to happen, when the end of the world is coming. Uh, and the, the Lateran Council, actually the Fifth Lateran Council, has expressly forbidden that you say this, that you are the one who knows what the, when the last judgment will happen. The only thing that you can say is that it will be in the future. It obviously hasn't occurred yet because we're still here, we're doing this radio show. So it has not happened yet, but at the same time, you cannot know when. Now, there are certain signs which are given to you in sacred scripture, even in the words of Christ himself, regarding sort of signs that tell you that it's coming. And these signs are reduced to five, that, that what the general idea is that once all five have happened, you can start expecting that the end of the world will be coming soon because there's nothing left after those things are, are done. Now, the, the signs that are given are the, the preaching of the gospel in the whole world. And you get this as a sign based on the, the, words, the words of Christ to the apostles when he tells them that to go preach the gospel to every living creature. So until that has been done, in a very general sense, not that necessarily every human being who ever lives will have a priest come up to them and tell them, this is the gospel of Christ, you should believe this, and this is why. But in a general, in a moral sense, that all of the nations of the world, all of the peoples of the world will have heard of Christianity, uh, the Catholic Church, that these people will be exposed in some way to to the Catholic Church. And I think in the most general sense, we could say that this is, has occurred, that the gospel has been preached to the entire world, especially due to the ex extensive, extensive missionary work of the Catholic Church in the early 1900s. You had priests going to China, to India, to Australia, to Indonesia, the middle of the Amazon, places that were never really accessed before. So I think it, it's, in the most general of senses, one could say that this first, this first sign of the end of the world has been fulfilled, that the gospel has been preached to the entire world. The second sign, I think, is definitely not happened yet, and that is the conversion of the Jews. Uh, St. Paul tells us, I believe it's St. Paul, that the Jews will convert before the end of the world. Now this, again, doesn't mean that every single Jew descendant of Abraham will convert to the Catholic faith. But the Jews as a body, and you can see even in most of the big cities that the Jews definitely have not converted yet as a body. There, there's a great number of Jews. There are synagogues. The whole really state of Israel, I think, is proof that the Jews have not converted yet. So this is the second sign of the end of the world has not been fulfilled. and. That in itself, I think, would tell us that the end of the world is not going to be soon. In the most broadly speaking, general of senses, soon is a very relative word. The third sign, again, I think, is 
again, unlike the conversion of the Jews, I believe the third sign of the end of the world has occurred. And this is the, the general apostasy of Catholic peoples. And I think that this, you could, you could say that Vatican II is a general apostasy of the Catholic world. Obviously, there are people who have resisted this apostasy, and that is why we're here today. But generally speaking, the vast, vast majority of Catholics have lost the faith. And if you looked at the number of Catholics that were going to Mass in 1950 or even 1960, before the, the changes really started taking, taking place, you, you'll see that if you compare it with what, what happens today, the attendance at Mass is, is drastically down. The people who consider themselves practicing Catholics, who attend the sacraments, try to lead a Christian life, a prayer life, avoid occasions of sin, most people have no concern with that anymore. They, they've completely lost faith. So I think that, that, that we, I think that we could safely say that the, the general apostasy of the Catholic Church or the Catholic peoples, not the Church itself, has indeed happened. The, the fourth sign also I don't think has occurred yet, which is the coming of the Antichrist. And there are all sorts of conspiracy theories regarding the Antichrist. So-and-so was the Antichrist, so-and-so was the Antichrist, Paul VI perhaps, or various, various people have come up with various theories that the Antichrist already is here. And I think that that's presumptuous and at the same time not true because the whole point of the Antichrist is that he is generally acknowledged. It is the Antichrist is truly an Antichrist. Christ has come to propose a whole, a whole lifestyle, essentially, to the entire world and was either recognized or rejected when he, when he came. And the, sort of the purpose of the Antichrist is the exact opposite, to be noticed by the whole world as the savior of the world. He, he's supposed to be, Christ came to be the, the savior of mankind, and he did, in fact, save the, the human race on the cross and with his passion. The, the purpose of the Antichrist is to fulfill the expectation that humans have of a savior. So either on a temporal level or a spiritual level, but the, the Antichrist is going to be entirely temporal. He's going to save you from all of the problems that come up, for instance, war or hunger, unemployment. His purpose will be to create a temporal paradise on this earth, whereas Christ has, of course, come to save us for heaven. So it's, they're, they're in direct opposition to each other, and the doctrine that they preach will be directly opposed. So to say that, for instance, Paul VI or someone like that is an antichrist, yes, he definitely has an anti-Christian attitude, an anti-Christian way of presenting, I guess, the way that you should live. But at the same time, he's not trying to make for you a temporal paradise. Yes, they, they, they want... The, the world, everyone should be happy, everyone should live 
without wars and peace is good and unemployment is bad and Aspergillio says uh, loneliness is evil and all things like that. But the he none of the Vatican II popes or anti-popes actually until this day have really made it sort of solved the problem that there are still wars, there are still there are still hunger, there is still famine, there is unhappiness in the world. And the, the Antichrist will be coming and he will propose himself as a solution to all of those problems, that he himself is going to save you from, from various things. And so it's going to be extremely obvious when he does in fact appear that this is the Antichrist, the Antichrist, not necessarily an anti-Christian man or an anti-Christian government or something along those lines. But the person of the Antichrist will be very dramatic. He will work false miracles uh, through the power of the devil. He will, it will be a very extraordinary thing. It will not be an average day-to-day -day person teaching doctrines contradictory to the Catholic faith. So I think it's very safe to say, almost even certain, that the coming of the Antichrist has not yet happened. The, the last of the five signs that uh, tell that the coming of the world is on the horizon, as it were, that is coming soon, are problems in nature, and by this is mainly earthquakes, pestilence, things will not essentially work right, so there will probably be meteor showers, signs in the heaven, things that are not normal. I mean, there are meteor showers on a fairly regular basis, there are, the temperature of the world goes up and down. I don't think it's even remotely pertaining to the subject whether or not the Earth has warmed or cooled five or 10 degrees. So I don't think you could say that global warming would be a, a sign of the end of the world. <laughs> Although I'm sure quite a few people would want you to believe that, that uh, <laughs> the world is going to burn up and you know, there's going to be end, which in a certain sense it will. The, the earth will be destroyed by fire, as we have learned in sacred scripture. But to say that just because it's five degrees warmer in some parts of the world than it was 10 years ago, doesn't, doesn't mean that the end of the world is coming next week. So you have, it would be volcanoes on a regular basis, not, not the odd volcano that we have here and there where every few years a different mountain uh, essentially blows up when there's a volcano Mount St. Helens or the recent, more recent one in Iceland that caused all sorts of damage. Those are natural, but they happen on a, every so often you get that horrible, a horrible volcano or a natural disaster that's, that's going to destroy a great number of things. The sign of the end of the world has to be something obvious. So to have just a volcano is not necessarily obvious, but if you were to have, for instance, 50 volcanoes all over the world at the same time or within a week of each other, that would, I think, be drastic enough that it would be obvious to everyone there's something seriously wrong. Of course, the scientists nowadays would tell you that the Earth is shifting or we're getting too close to the sun or there's asteroids coming or some, something along those lines, but it will be obvious. It will be something so extraordinary and unusual that everyone will notice it, everyone will be talking about it, even more than politicians and Earth-friendly people are talking about global warming today. And there will be other disasters as well, pestilences, uh, wars, 
and as I said, signs in the heaven, which there are signs in the, in the heaven. You have, as I said, meteor showers and lunar eclipses, so to say that because there's a lunar eclipse or a solar eclipse or something along those lines that necessarily the end of the world is coming, as some of the ancient pagans, peoples, the Aztecs, for instance, thought that if there's a solar eclipse, that means the world is ending. It, it's a natural occurrence that, that happens every so often, and sometimes they're even predictable as to where they will be visible, how long they will last, what day they will fall on, and people go to see them. So to, to say that just when there's a solar eclipse, that's necessarily going to be a sign of the end of the world, that, that is not true. However, there will be a darkening of the sun, and this, I think, is, a, is another favorite topic for uh, conspiracy theorists is the the three days of darkness that that you actually <laughs> you can you will find online survival kits for the three days of darkness where people believe that unless you have essentially the survival kit that we're selling here on our website you're going to have trouble getting through <laughs> through the three days of darkness and there will be a period of darkness and it's Sacred Scripture tells us that the sun and the moon will not shed their light, and that will be obviously something unusual and very noticeable that the sun doesn't didn't come up this morning, or the moon the moon is not in the sky. You will you'll be able to notice it. That, for instance, there may be no stars. It will be dark, and it will be very obvious that it's dark. But to say that if you go outside when it's dark, you're I think, I think the theory is, is that you're supposed to die. And that's supposed to be a horrible thing, but quite honestly, everyone is going to die eventually. So whether you die in your house with your candle that you've lit for the 72 hours, or outside, it doesn't really make a difference. The, the purpose of, the end of, of the, the end of the world is that there are no human beings alive. So sooner or later, you're going to die. And I personally would rather just drop dead during the three days of darkness than be burnt alive at the end of the final destruction of the world. It would seem to be go perhaps a little quicker. Although for my sins, I think I would probably deserve the, <laughs> the less pleasant version at the end of the world. But to say that you're, you have to have a special candle that's blessed on a certain day in a certain ceremony in a certain way it borders on superstition that, that you have to have a piece of wax, essentially, that is going to save you from the wrath of God. And it's, in a sense, superstitious because a piece of wax, even if you bless it, and I think the blessing is supposed to happen on Candlemas Day, the blessing of that candle is for the procession. And to say that this is because it's been blessed for a procession, it's necessarily going to save you from the three days of darkness, is not what the, the blessing is for. So I think it's, it's assuming too much based on what we are told. And it makes people essentially go crazy. You have people who are worried sick about the three days of darkness. And we do not know for certain that it will be completely dark. The electric lights might still work. It might, there might still be power all over the world. So you, you can't 
say that it will be pitch black and then no one can see and no one can go outside and if you go outside you're going to die and you know, you'll be able to see devils flying around outside your window. I think that's part of the, the theory too or something along those lines. To, to say all of that based on the testimony of sacred scripture that the sun will be darkened, it will make you worry too much about something that doesn't need to be worried about. And in a sense, that is a temptation of the devil because if you are worried, essentially, to, to being sick over whether or not there's going to be, whether or not you have your 72-hour candle and what do you do if it burns out after 71 hours or something along those lines, the whole time that you're worrying about those things, which really don't matter in the long run, you could be neglecting your duties, you could be committing sins against faith, doubt in the providence of God. And so it's, an essential, it's essentially a temptation to worry too much about what isn't important and to neglect what is important. So I think that, yes, if the sun doesn't come up tomorrow, I would be pretty sure that that's a sign that the end of the world is fairly close by, but at the same time, I'm not going to lose any sleep over whether or not it will. If it does, it does. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And I don't have my three days of darkness candle in my room here at the seminary, and I'm not planning on getting one. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that that generally answers the question of when the, the last judgment will happen, is that we don't know, but there are certain signs that tell us that it will be soon. So it sounds like question four should give us a clue on what we really need to worry about. How shall we be judged? Yes, I think that would, that would be uh, more to worry about because when it happens is not quite so important as to what it will be about. And yes, we will be judged on every moment of every day of our entire lives. And not just our entire lives, but essentially the effect that we have on the human race in general. So for instance, if you, if someone is to, were to write a, a heretical book and this heretical book is read by people even 500 years after your death, as the case of a certain uh, fallen away prelate that Bergoglio has praised recently, Martin Luther, he will be responsible for all of the people who become Lutherans. And so it's not just you during your whole lifetime, but the effect that you have from the moment of your birth, essentially, even to the, to the end of the world. And so it's, it covers a lot of material. Uh, you have, of course, all of your thoughts, even your, your most secret thoughts that you think, oh, no one will ever see this, no one will ever know that this happened. And... <laughs> Unfortunately, or actually quite fortunately, everyone who ever lived will know. And it will be told to everyone, you'll be standing there and the whole world will know about the thing that you think is no one will ever find out about. And so it's a very, uh, it's a very good deterrent from doing evil is that, yes, no one sees you now, perhaps, but the whole world is going to know about it. And you'll be there in front of all of the angels and saints, our Lord, our Lady, and they're all going to be told everything that you did. And so if, you, if one thinks about that on a, on a 
fairly regular basis that that is one of the the best deterrents from sin is is the in a sense it's a human respect but it's a, a good type of human respect <laughs> that makes you want to avoid being well in the in the worldly sense you want to avoid being embarrassed in front of everybody <laughs> Question five, how will the last judgment be held? It will be held in a very, very solemn manner. It is, it is probably the most, the most solemn and spectacular event in human history. Christ will come as man, so he, it will not be, you will not be truly seeing the beatific vision because that, well, if you see the beatific vision, you wouldn't be in hell anymore. And that goes against the whole notion of hell. So you, it will be Christ as he is man, but in his glorified body. So if we think of the transfiguration where the apostles saw Christ shining as the sun and his garments were white as snow, and even they who knew him quite well by that point were terrified and they fell flat on their faces just to see the, the human nature, the glorified human nature of Christ, that is a, just a taste of what we will experience at the Last Judgment, because you will see Christ coming with all of the, the power and majesty of God, as, as he says to, to uh, Caiaphas before his passion. He will be coming with all the power and majesty of God on the clouds of heaven. He will be accompanied by all of the angels, the good angels, and we know that there are legions and legions and legions of angels, that it's a number beyond, beyond reckoning. And if you think that there are lots of human beings, and there have been, I think, seven billion or so human beings right now on Earth, and over the last at least five or 6,000 years, there have been human beings the whole time, each one of those human beings has had a guardian angel. And a guardian angel is, considered to be taken from the, the lowest of the nine choirs of angels. And each choir of angels, the higher the choir, the more angels there are in it. So if you think of all the human beings now, all the human beings all throughout time, and that's only a portion of the lowest choir of angels, the, the number of angels is astronomical. And they will all be there. And if you think back to sacred scripture, various apparitions of angels where even the most holy persons are terrified of an angel. And that's just an angel, not, not the most, not that from the lowest choir of angels, sometimes an archangel, which is the, the choir immediately above them. Those are the, the least of God's messengers and they terrify the holiest of saints by their majesty. So to imagine billions and trillions of them all together at once is, is just mind-blowing. And all of the, the saints will be there as well. And it, it will be a, an a spectacular and extraordinary event. And all of the human, as we said, all of the, all of the human beings that were ever created will be there. And this will be after the resurrection of the body. So the, the saints and the just will have their glorified bodies. So they themselves will be an object of wonder and splendor. And 
they will be glorified bodies, so it will be something that is extremely shows the majesty of God, which is reflected in his saints. So you have all of the saints and all of the just people all throughout time. You have all of the angels, you have Christ, Our Lady, the apostles. So all of you'll have all of the, the good and the saints will be there. And then you also have, of course, all of the demons and the reprobate will also be present. That part will not be quite so nice to look at, but at the same time, that too shows the majesty of God and the, the true heinousness of an offense against God, that it, that it merits such an immense punishment. You, you will see the angels on the one hand, the, the faithful servants of God, and how splendid and marvelous they are. And at the same time, you will see the, the devils who have rejected God, and you will see just how horrible and disfigured they have become. And that will manifest the glory of, and the majesty of God. So it will be an extremely spectacular and extraordinary and awe-inspiring event. Even the greatest of saints will, will tremble to see the, the majesty of Christ coming for the last judgment. And so that, that will be the, more or less, who will be there. And as far as to how it will be conducted, each human being who ever lived will, will be pre presented before, before the throne of God. And it will be made manifest to everyone present, both the angels, the demons, the saints, and the reprobate. All of the events of that person's life, as far as they relate to the person's sanctification or damnation, and every single moment of every single day will, in some manner, relate to your last end, whether it is in conformity to it or against it. In the state of grace, as the, the example goes, to eat a cookie can be a meritorious act because you're in the state of grace and there is involved a love of God. It's, you don't really think about it when you go to eat a cookie, but at the same time, it is there, and that will be shown to the entire world. And at the same time, the, the slightest motion of impatience will be manifest, and it could be something that's even justified in itself, that, that someone has truly done something wrong, but if you overdo it in your response, just the slightest, that is a fault, and those faults will be made manifest to the entire world. So it will be a very solemn, it will be a very solemn passing of sentence on the entire human race, and a confirmation of the sentence on the angels. The angels, of course, are already confirmed in either their blessedness or their damnation as angels or devils, but there will be a confirmation of that sentence, and it will also be shown to the entire world what the devils have done throughout the ages to, to tempt people, to overthrow the, the hierarchy of Christ, the, the work of the church, the good morals of people, the, the Christian nations. All of that will be brought to light. And then once everything has been exposed, then we will have the judgment upon the entire human race pronounced by Christ in the most, the most solemn manner. It is speculated, and this is just a speculation, that the actual manifestation of the works of every single human being 
could be done mentally. It will not necessarily be speaking out loud. It could be just a, an inspiration that is given to each to each of the pe people present. What and it could be done in an instant. It could take. It could take a thousand years to go through the general judgment, or it could be done in just an instant. It, it really depends on the manner that it's conducted. But it is probably safe to say that the final sentence, which is going to determine your lot forever, for all eternity, will be pronounced with vocal words by Christ himself as the judge of the human race, and that will be either the most splendid thing or the most terrible thing that will ever happen to any person that was ever created. So, Father, what will be the sentence and the end of the last judgment? Well, the, the question sums it up very well, and I think I will just quote the question, at least for the, the text of Christ. Christ will say to the good, Come, ye blessed of my Father, possess you the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So he will, he will tell all of the, the good who will be separated from the wicked, uh, and it will be extremely obvious who's on which side, that you have cooperated with grace, you have done as you were asked, and so now you welcome to heaven, essentially, and you will be in heaven for all eternity, and this is your reward, and it will be the most, the most wonderful thing that you ever hear. And at the same time, hearing that and not being included in that will be one of the worst things that you could ever hear, that all of these people are, are going to heaven for all eternity and they are going to be the most wonderfully happy and contented human beings that will ever exist. And they will be in that state forever. And you are not. That will be one of the worst, the worst things that you could ever hear to not be included in that. But the worst act for the, the people who are not included in that will be the sentence of Christ upon them, which he will give after, after he has invited the, the just to heaven for all eternity. And as the, the book says, but to the wicked he will say, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. And these shall go into everlasting punishment, but the just into life everlasting. And that will be forever, as, as it says, life everlasting or everlasting punishment. And to hear that from the mouth of Christ in his glorified human nature after he has manifested to the entire creation everything that you have done from, or everything that you have done, everything you were responsible for. And that will, that will be made manifest to the entire world, and then he will tell you, based on what you have done, you are deserving of damnation. And to hear that from Christ with all of the majesty that he will have when he pronounces that sentence will be the absolute worst thing that will ever happen to you. And you will have that in, in your ears for all eternity because once in hell, always, always in hell, there's no turning back, there's, there's, no, there's no repentance, there's, your, your lot is fixed. And that will be the most horrible thing that ever happens. And it will be a dreadful, a dreadful, dreadful and terrifying event.
but it will manifest the justice of God and it will also manifest the mercy of God because it will show just how much care he has taken for all of those people or even the devils who have fallen and how they treated him. And it will be, it will be shown to the entire world that the sentence imposed on them is actually less than they deserve. They deserve worse. And after the last judgment, everyone will understand that and everyone will agree to the sentence, both the damned and the just. They will agree with the sentence and they will know that it is just and that it is merciful. Question seven is, if, is there not besides the general another judgment? Yes, and, and this, is, this is called the particular judgment. It, it occurs immediately after death in, in the sense that if someone is dead, you can pronounce them judged. They, they will either be in heaven, purgatory, or hell after, after their death. Unless, of course, they never achieve the use of reason, in which case they have the option of limbo, which is a dogma of faith. So there will be a, a particular judgment, and this will be a very personal thing, but at the same time, it will, it will, sh it will be very in-depth and, in a sense, general, because it will, it will cover every aspect, every moment of your life from your birth until your death, and you will see essentially everything that you have done, both good and bad, and based on what you are seeing of your, your own actions, you will, you will know whether, where you belong. And either you will go immediately to heaven, which is quite rare, unfortunately. It, you, the, only the, the great saints, the, the Sikhanai saints, go immediately to heaven. And there was a few, and not necessarily just the Canaanite saints, the, the, the true saints go immediately to heaven. But most of us will reach the end of our lives with either venial sins on our souls or temporal punishments still remaining due to the sins we've committed. And we will see at the particular judgments that we are not fit for heaven. We are unworthy of the company of the saints. We are unclean we are still guilty of either venial sin or worthy of punishment. And so the, the soul will actually voluntarily go to purgatory. It will be a, a voluntary, you will, you will desire purgatory, to, to go to purgatory to, to expiate for your sins so that you are worthy to, to essentially show yourself before the face of God. And I suppose one of the things that, that always made me wonder before, before I actually studied this at the seminary is how you can be judged by God, but at the same time not see God. And <laughs> essentially, if you're going to be damned, but you see God at the judgment, that's got to be worth it. So you're not, it's, you know, after seeing God, at least for that one instant, hell wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> but it is it is true that you, you don't you won't actually see you won't actually see God the, the common saying the way of saying it is, is you, you stand before the judgment seat of God and at the same time you will you will not truly be in a physical place in a cloud somewhere which is sort of I think the general the general picture that people have to stand on a cloud in front of this big gold throne 
and God is sitting there on the throne, the, the Blessed Trinity with all of the, the, the splendor and majesty of God are sitting there. And they're going to, to look at you and, and say that, you know, you, you've been bad and so now for, we're, we're going to send you to hell. So you, that's sort of the general picture of, of a particular judgment is, is that you're, and for some reason they always picture you as a person, so you're usually wearing a suit and tie or a long robe, I think, in most of the old pictures. And, and that's, that's sort of a very pious way of putting it, but at the same time, you won't, you won't truly see the beatific vision, which is, is to see God face to face at your particular judgment. But you will see, you will understand that God is the one that's judging you, and you will at the same time know all of the events of your life and whether they were good or evil. But you will not see, even Christ as a man, it is said that you will not see the human nature of Christ because he is in heaven and he will not leave heaven in his human nature in, in bodily form until the last judgment. Of course, we have the, the, the in the mass, Christ is present, but in a, in a different way, he's present sacramentally and not under his true flesh and blood uh, in, in physical form as, as meat and bone and sinew, but under the species of bread and wine. So, you will not see a human, a human Christ, which is another typical picture that you see, is, is Christ as, as man, as he's depicted in most of the religious art of the Holy Land of Christ with the Apostles, as, as, as a man, and not, and not truly as he is, as his God. But it will not be Christ as, as a man physically present to you at the moment of your death, judging you. It will be you will have a knowledge that, that God is judging you and that your actions are being weighed as they stand before God, but you will not actually see God himself. You will see your actions and your soul will be freed from the, the way that your, your body and your, your brain tend to think of things. It will be just your soul realizing how your actions are affected are affecting your soul spiritually and not whether you had a cold or whether you had, whether the weather was warm as it is in Florida here today or whether it's raining or snowing or whether you died in a car accident. That, that will not so much matter as the fact of what does this particular action have to say for itself when it's compared to the law of God, the law of the church, and morality, and so that you will see that clearly. Now we, we tend to excuse ourselves and we tend to think of good reasons why this is okay, this is not really a sin, this might be just an imperfection or everyone else is doing this, therefore it's okay. But once you are sort of freed from the very worldly and a temporal way of seeing things, your soul will realize just what the morality of each action is that you've ever done. And that will be your judgment. You will, in a sense, condemn yourself because you will see what you are guilty of and you will either willingly go to purgatory or you will willingly go to hell to escape, in a sense, the, the presence of God. And at the same time, in hell, you will still be constantly tormented by the thought of God and that 
that God exists and that he is punishing you and that you deserve it. So there, there will be a particular judgment and it will be immediately after death and so much so that the theologians say that if you can pronounce someone dead, you can pronounce them judged. And it, it will be very, very quick. It will not take two hours or three hours or even the length of your lifetime because it will be a spiritual thing. It will not be a physical external manifestation that we mentioned earlier with the, the general judgment that Christ will probably pronounce the final sentence audibly with spoken words. At the particular judgment, it will not be like that. It will be essentially a vision of your soul and its value, and that will take only an instant. And at the same time, it will be a very terrible thing, the, the, the idea of a particular judgment that once you are separated from your body, once you've died, there's no going back and, in a sense, fixing it so that that will be the end of it. And to, to have that happen is a, is a very terrible thing. The, the moment of death is, even for a great saint, is, is a very awesome in, in, in the sense of awe-inspiring and, and truly terrible thing to look forward to. So that it's, uh, the particular judgment will, will happen immediately after the death and it will determine your lot forever. And immediately afterwards you will be in heaven, purgatory, or hell. And it will be, it will be a, a, a wondrous thing and something that each person will, will have to go through. There, there is no escaping the, the particular judgment. So plenty to worry about with your particular judgment instead of even considering the, the general judgment. Yes, even just 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 the thought of a particular judgment should be enough to to make people behave. But generally, I think it's the the idea of having everybody else know that that people think about more with the general judgment. But even the particular judgment, the finality of it is is a truly truly amazing thing. We would like to remind you that you're listening to This Is Catholicism on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Jason Gordiano, and I'm joined by Father L. Drucker, and today we've been discussing the seventh article of the Apostles' Creed, uh, discussing the last judgment, uh, which is the general judgment, and then, the, and then the, your uh, particular judgment. Father, uh, question eight, you've kind of gone over this already, the, the question, why will there be a general judgment besides the particular? The, the, the book puts it very well. The, the, the general judgment is to show God's wisdom and justice that they may be acknowledged by all men. When, when you see the way that, that humans act, and you, you only see a very small, a very small aspect of, of human existence. You see yourself, people immediately that affect you, and your, your sort of worldview is very, very limited. You don't understand the effect that your actions might have even 500 years from now, as I mentioned with Luther originally. And you don't see that. And your actions could have a great result either for good or for evil. So for instance, you have the Council of Trent that will have, that will have a, a good effect all throughout human history from now until the end of the world, even from 500 years ago until the end of the world. And at the same time, you have Luther who will also have a huge effect on human history from the time of well, his time until the end of the world. And so 
he himself probably didn't realize the effect he would have. The fathers of Council of Trent probably did not realize that they would be quoted so often in, in defense of Catholic faith against the Vatican II apostasy. And so they, they will see this, the wisdom of God and the providence of God and how everything that happened in human history will relate to them and how they will be responsible for human history. So it will, the first reason is that it will manifest the wisdom and justice of God. And then the second reason is that our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified before the whole world. When Christ came, and so many thousand years ago, or two thousand years ago, he only knew and met and interacted with a very, very small portion of, of the human race. There, he was in Palestine. He was, his public life lasted for only about three years, and he perhaps only spoke to less than a hundred thousand people in his entire earthly apostolate. And most of them rejected him. You have the, the Jews who uh, condemned him before Pilate. They, they wished to have him crucified, the, the scribes and Pharisees, the chief priests. Most of the human race rejected Christ, either as a fool or an imposter or a false messiah. And a false messiahist, I think that's the correct word. So most of them, most of them have rejected him. And so the general judgment, one of the purposes, will be to manifest and glorify Christ as the Redeemer of human race before the entire world, both before those who have accepted him and who have believed in him and those who have rejected him. And that, that will be a very, as I mentioned, to the coming of Christ at the Last Judgment will be a very wondrous thing. And it will be very different from his, his humble uh, arrival in the stable of Bethlehem so many years ago. And it will manifest the glory of God. And that is one of the purposes of the general judgment. The, the third purpose that the book gives us is that the good may receive the honor due to them and the wicked the dishonor they have deserved. That, that, that this is a very true and very, very pertinent statement. In order that justice be, be truly observed and that the fullness of justice be achieved, which of course will happen at the end of the world, you will have to realize what benefit the persecution of the just has had, just how wicked the evil have the the wicked have been in persecuting the just, the the for instance the the injustice against the martyrs, the fact that they are just professing the faith and that you're going to kill them in all of these horrible ways. For that, the, the Roman martyrs especially, you, you see so many thousands and thousands of martyrs. And the, the people in Rome, the pagans, considered them to be fools and idiots. You know, these, these nobly born people, quite often, are willing to suffer these horrible things just for some, for some belief in a, a man who was crucified as a criminal. And so the, they, they were considered fools. And at the Last Judgment, the, the true nature of the fortitude of the martyrs will be revealed to those people, to the whole world. And the culpability of the, the pagan Romans who would not accept the gospel despite all the miracles and despite the testimony of the martyrs and the preaching of the, the, the popes and the bishops, 
that will be shown to them that these are all the chances you've received and this is what you did with it. You, you have wasted all of these graces. And so you will see, the whole world will be made aware of both all of the graces that have been accepted and followed and all of the graces that have been rejected. And that will be true both of those who save their souls and who are damned. So you may have someone who received a grace and accepted a grace and, and corresponded with the grace, but later fell into sin and died and died in sin. And you will see how much more guilty they are for abandoning grace after they've received it. And it will be made manifest to the whole world that the scales of justice will be perfectly balanced and all of the workings of divine providence will be explained with regard to the human race, the, the current state of the church, the general apostasy. It will, it will be shown to us how that event, which is, is horrible to think of even, that the entire world would lose the faith, in generally speaking. But at the same time, all that the evil is permitted by God is for a greater good. So there is some greater good that is coming that required this, this general apostasy of, of the human race. And we will understand at the final judgment just why Vatican II happened, why the persecution of the church happened, why there are so few priests today, why there are so many people who don't have a priest or the sacraments. And that will all be manifest to us. And it will be a wondrous thing and it will be a terrible thing. Question nine, which we've already gone over is, whether does the soul go after the particular judgment? And the answer in the book is either to heaven or to hell or to purgatory. Which brings us to question 10, Father. Yes. How do we know that there is a purgatory? Well, the, the, first, the first answer is from Holy Scripture. And that is normally the way that you, you search out any truth of faith is that it's always contained in sacred scripture. That any any doctrine dogma of the faith is contained in sacred scripture. Sometimes it's, you have to dig pretty hard to find it. And, but it is always there. And if you can always find some reference to it in sacred scripture. And for purgatory, we do have several. We have several references regarding Holy Scripture and purgatory. Now, the, the first one, which is, works very well for Catholics and unfortunately not quite so well for Protestants, because of the book of sacred scripture that it's from, is the a quote from the second book of Maccabees, where the, the Jews had just gone out and they'd fought a huge battle, and some of the Jews had essentially stolen from the pagans, or they had idols, little tiny idols that they kept with them, and because they were precious, or because they were superstitious Jews. And some of these Jews were found after the battle dead, with either the stolen goods or the, the idols on their person. And so the, the, the leader of the Jews, Judas Maccabeus, sent to Jerusalem to have sacrifices offered for these Jews who died. And as the, the text of Holy Scripture says, the reason he gives is, quote, it is a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from sins, unquote. So, the idea that they are dead, they're very dead, and at the same time they can still be released from their sins is, an, is a proof of purgatory. It, it says that 
you're dead for starters, and at the same time, you are in sin, but that there is still a way that you can be released from your sins and you can achieve eternal rest. So that, that, is, that is a, it's in a sense very general, it's a very general quotation, but at the same time, it is very explicit in that there is a remedy for sin after death. And it is not, it is true that it is not God speaking to Moses or a divine revelation to some prophet. But at the same time, the fact that the leader of the Jews is expressing this belief of his people that, that there is a, a remedy for sin after death it is, very, is a very good proof that, that purgatory does in fact exist, that the sins can be remitted or the punishment for sins can be remitted after death. So that, that is a very good text to quote perhaps for Catholics. Protestants, of course, don't include the, the books of Maccabees in their Bibles, so that, that is not the best argument against the Protestant until you can first convince him that the book of Maccabees is part of sacred scripture. Another echo of Luther. Another echo of Luther, absolutely. And Luther, I think, rejected Maccabees perhaps for this exact reason. And, but there are other quotations in sacred scripture too. So if we look at the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 12, uh, our Lord is speaking about sins, sins and sins that are forgiven. And in verse 31, he, he sort of leads up, he gives you the context of the, of the, of the, the quotation that is, going, that is going to be put forth for purgatory. And when you're quoting sacred scripture, you always have to look at the context. You can't just look at a specific verse and say, this is in sacred scripture, therefore, this is, this, this is what it means. You have to look at the context. And sometimes if you don't look at the context, you, can get, you could get a very bad uh, understanding. So for instance, one of, one, of the, one of the verses in one of the Psalms says, there is no God, there is no God. That is a quote, that is a quote just as explicit as the quote of Bergoglio, there is no Catholic God. But, so you could say sacred scripture says there is no God. And you'd be quite wrong in that, because if you, if you look at the first half of that verse, <laughs> the full quotation is, only the fool hath said in his heart that there is no God. <laughs> so to say, to take it, it's, that's a very good example of taking a quotation of sacred scripture out of context. So to look at the, the context of, the, of this quotation of sacred scripture, our Lord is, is speaking, and he says that, uh, therefore I say to you, Every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but the blasphemy of the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And, and this is not the sense that you can blaspheme as much as you want and you're going to be forgiven as long as you don't do it against the Holy Ghost, but more or less that this, the sin of blasphemy is forgivable, but that the sins of blasphemy against the Holy Ghost are not forgiven because they are so perverse. It, it takes so much to, to blaspheme against the Holy Ghost that, that it is not that they in themselves are impossible to be forgiven. Every sin can be forgiven. But it's that those who commit them are so hardened in their sin that they very, very, very rarely, almost never, would convert from that. So, so now we have verse uh, 32 of chapter 12, which is the actual quotation in favor of purgatory. And the quotation is, 
And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But he that shall speak against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come. So that is, it's along the same lines of the, the text of Second Maccabees, which we just quoted. And this is our Lord speaking. It's the Gospel of St. Matthew, and it's a direct quotation. So Protestants will often tell you, well, the, the part about holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead is just from Maccabees, which is a part of sacred scripture. But the, this is our Lord speaking. He's speaking word for word in Holy Scripture, and it's, he says, neither in this world nor in the world to come. And this tells you that sins can be forgiven in the world to come. And that, that is a, a very, very explicit and I think the best, most direct proof in, in the whole of sacred scripture regarding the existence of purgatory because it is speaking, it's not a parable, it's not St. Paul's explanation, which are the other two things that we'll look at. It is Christ himself speaking directly about sins being forgiven after death. And I think that, that is very, it's very important and a very, very strong bulletproof proof of the existence of purgatory. So then the second text, which, and they, they do give you the references here in, in the book, and this text is, is a proof of purgatory, but it's, it's not explicitly about purgatory because it is a parable. Christ is giving a parable. And he tells you, let's see. This is a Matthew 5, 26? Yes, Matthew 5, 26. The quote of sacred scripture is, Amen, I say to thee that thou shalt not go out from thence until thou repay the last farthing. And if you look at the, the verse before, which of course gives you the context, he speaks, the, in the parable our Lord is, or the example that our Lord gives is, be nice to your neighbor, essentially, because he could bring you to a judge and the judges will put you in jail and you can't get out of jail until you've satisfied your debt. So it could be taken in a very natural sense where if you commit a crime, you go to jail and you stay in jail until you're, you've served your time. But that gives you the general principle behind purgatory is that you have committed sins and these sins must be forgiven and uh, repaid the damage done must be repaid before you can be entered, before you can enter into heaven. And really reading the whole, the whole uh, chapter five of, of St. Matthew, which is the, the Sermon on the Mount and the Eight Beatitudes, he tells, he tells you many things. And one of them, the first is that, well, related to this, he tells many things, but we, we won't cover them all here. But He's, he says in verse 23, if therefore thou offer thy gift at the altar and, that, and there thou remember that thy brother hath anything against thee, and then you go to verse 24, leave there thy offering before the altar and go first to be reconciled to thy brother and then coming thou shalt offer thy gift. And then in 25, be it agreement with thy adversary betimes, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest perhaps the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. So the general Catholic interpretation of that is that being on the way, in the way, is this, this current life that we are living. And we, we sort of draw an analogy from the very practical advice that if you were to just read this in any other book, it would be 
be nice to the people you're traveling with so that they don't put you in jail. But in the context of the Sermon on the Mount and the fact that Christ is speaking, there, there's always a, a moral lesson to be learned. And so you could, you could say that this is, one could take that being in the way for being in this life and the judgment that of the judge regarding your being cast into prison could relate to purgatory. So it's not a, an explicit, direct proof of purgatory, but it's one of the, the scriptural texts that is quoted in reference to purgatory. And then we have the, the last example that they give here is St. Uh, Paul. St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, oh, first letter, uh, chapter 3, uh, to verse 12 to 15. Yes, which I happen to have here. So St. Paul in this, in this particular chapter is, is giving some very practical advice, and he's speaking about the, the grace of God and the foundations of grace in the spiritual life. So he leads off in the, the previous verses with essentially that he designs the, the edifice that you're building your faith on, and it's up to you what you build on it. You can build with, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, and that's actually verse 12. So he says in verse 12, Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Verse 13, every man's work shall be manifest, for the day of the Lord shall declare it, because it shall be revealed in fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Verse 14, if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Verse 15, if any man's work burn, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So the quote that has to do with purgatory is the idea of being saved, yet so as by fire. And the context is that the, the faith is the foundation upon which you build, and you build by the actions of your life. So virtue and good works can be considered to be gold, silver, precious stones. And then you have the, the things that are combustible and that will burn rather than be pure, than become better in fire. And those are wood, hay, and stubble. That would be the, the sins and imperfections, things that are done incorrectly in your life in, in a moral sense. And St. Paul tells you that the, <laughs> you, will, you will be saved, but those things must be burnt. And they are actions and not not the, the, the person yourself. So you will, the, the pain of purgatory is, is just, is generally speaking, a pain of fire. And th this is one of the texts adduced in favor of that. And then we have the three standard ways of proving any, or adducing proofs for any one, one dogma. And usually you go from Holy Scripture, then to tradition, then to, to what you can adduce from reason. And so the, the, the tradition of the church teaches essentially what the same as the, as, the, as the text in the Maccabees. You have the idea of doing a requiem mass for someone who is deceased. You have the indulgences applicable to the, to the poor souls in purgatory. And the common, the common way that Catholics act or at least the common way the Catholics used to act before Vatican II, is that when someone died, you would, you would go into mourning. You would not automatically assume that someone is in heaven. You would pray for the repose of the soul of, of a person. And this, this is the, the common belief of Catholics, even for 
thousands of years. This goes back to the very, very early church. And it's expressed in, in that text that we quoted originally from the, the book of Maccabees is that it is a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead. And that is the, the standard practice of Christians, just as it was, as we see from the book of Maccabees, the standard practice of the, the Jews before the time of Christ. So that is the tradition of the, the church as, as a proof of a dogma. You, you look at, this is the, the way of acting and the way of believing and praying reflects back on, on the dogma, what, what the people, the, the standard practice shows that there is some teaching of the church regarding this. It doesn't, you don't say that, well, because we do this, therefore it must be the teaching of the church, but you say, Everyone does this. It, this is a sign that someone must have, has, have taught this and that someone is the Catholic Church. But it's not that if we don't like it, as a certain uh, traditionalist group would tell you, if we don't like it, then therefore it's not a Catholic teaching. So it's, you look at the fact that everyone does in fact believe this, therefore the Church has, has given this to us. So that, that is a, a, an example of, of showing the tradition of the church in regards to, uh, to a, a dogma, not perhaps the best example, but it is an example. And then you have the, the, the proof from reason, and in a sense, that's one of the easiest ones to figure out. You don't have to, to quite uh, look through the entire Bible to, to find a, a text that, that does in fact speak about uh, remission of sins after death. But if you, if you think about it, to go to heaven, the, the only thing that will happen in heaven is really the heaven is the love of God in the most perfect way possible, is seeing God face to face. And that will require all affection and attachment to anything besides God to disappear. So to have a sin, a sin is a even a venial sin is a turning away from God. It's slighting God for the sake of a creature. And the idea of having that in heaven and at the same time being most perfectly in the most wondrous state attached to God, that will require such a, a focus of your attention. It, it will be constituted by such a focus of your attention on God that there's no room for any attachment to a sin or being lazy or any, any sort of sin at all, uh, a love of money, a love of comfort, all of that will be incompatible with a pure and complete, perfect love of God. And so... So without purgatory, would everyone just have to go to hell then? Yes. That, that is, so purgatory is really an example of the mercy of God in that God foresees that even the greatest of saints will commit an imperfection, as, as Sacred Scripture says, the just man falls seven times a day. This does not necessarily mean that you know, the great saints go out and murder seven people every day or something like that. But there, there is some imperfection, some slight, even the slightest turning away from God towards a creature, uh, being upset about having to get up at whatever time it is that you have to wake up to do your, to do your work, or so, the classic example, sitting in traffic, generally, very, 
Very many uh, imperfections of impatience, at least, are committed while sitting in traffic. And so even, even the greatest of saints are subject to that. And you, you, will, you will see that even, and that's one of the things that you'll see in your particular judgment, is just how offensive even that little thing is to God. And so you will, you will see and you'll realize that I don't belong in heaven. There's no way I, I would feel it's like going to, to, <laughs> to a formal banquet in, in your rags. You, you, you don't want to be there. You want to leave. You, 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 want to, you feel so embarrassed about that. And that's even just a temporal thing. It's, it's a purely worldly, natural thing that, that you're, you feel underdressed at a party or something like that. And so to take that to a spiritual level, level the idea of going to heaven without, without being ready or worthy of heaven will be so repugnant to the soul that you will the soul will voluntarily cast itself into purgatory as an escape from hell. And if there were no purgatory, the soul would, would actually voluntarily go to hell in order to not um, be in heaven unworthily. And that, that's something that's hard for us to understand because we tend to think in along the terms of hell being painful and therefore I'm not going to go to hell because it's painful. I'd rather just go to heaven, even if I'm not quite perfect. But once, once you're soul separates from the body, the, the soul understand perfectly just how offensive sin is to God, and then the, the soul will, will gladly go to purgatory rather than go to hell. Question 11. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit already, but who, who go to purgatory? Well, yes, we, we did discuss this a little bit, but there, there is an aspect of this we didn't cover, so we'll, we'll, we'll sort of touch on the first one. And it's, that, that would be point number one. So you have, first, the souls who have not committed moral sins, they're guilty of, of venial, venial sins, or if they have committed moral sins in the past, these have been forgiven in, in the sacrament of penance. But people who are not, who are in venial sin, they, they have an attachment to creatures, which is incompatible with, with the, the pure and com perfect, complete love of God the perfect, complete love of God that is in heaven. And so they will go to purgatory and they will be glad to go to purgatory. But then you have a second group of people, but these people, they are not guilty of sin. So you may have a great saint who at the moment of their death uh, is not guilty of any sins. They may have either just gone to confession or they may actually be martyrs and they're Martyrdom is is a way of effacing all of the the uh, the 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 sins, but at the same time you have the with perfect martyrdom. If it's truly a martyrdom, that removes also the temporal punishment due to sin. But if for some reason you you manage to get yourself martyred improperly, uh, where you still have an affection for sin, or it's not it's not um, you're not truly being killed for the sake of the faith, but for some other, for some other reason. But you, you, if you manage to, to, to make a mess of your own martyrdom, uh, you, you would have this, this scenario where you, you do not have any true sins on your conscience, but at the same time, you have not fully satisfied for all of your previous sins. So probably a much better example of that would be if you have a, a Catholic who has who has lived a life, they've 
lived a life of sin, they perhaps haven't gone to confession very often, or even Catholics who have gone to confession, you have, you commit sins on a, on a daily basis, some of them mortal, some of them venial, hopefully not mortal sins on a daily basis, but there will be sins your entire life in some form or other. And these, these sins accumulate temporal punishment due to sin. It's the general idea of restitution. You have, if you steal money, you have to return the money. And until you've, until you've paid back that money, you owe a debt. And that debt is the temporal punishment due to sin. So even if the sin itself is forgiven, this is a theft or the, the injustice, whatever the sin might be, until the, the debt is repaid, the, there is still what we call temporal punishment due to sin. It's not eternal punishment, which is due to a mortal sin, which has not been forgiven yet. It's a temporal punishment, so it will either be time in purgatory or penance that you can perform in this, this life, indulgences and acts of piety, uh, fasting, penance, almsgivings. There are ways to remove the temporal punishment due to sin in this life. If that's not done, however, once you die, all of that accumulated debt, so to speak, is taken care of in purgatory. And that is, I think, a very good application of the text of St. Paul that we quoted just a few minutes ago that says that uh, you'll be purified by fire, and that fire is purgatory. Father, so what are some of the ways you can recommend that people can prepare or take care of this debt now? Well, one of the best is, is the, uh, the sacramental penance that is imposed in confession. When you go to confession, you confess your sins and the priest gives you a penance. The penance that the priest gives you in confession is actually one of the most efficacious means of satisfying for the sins you've committed. So it has a, a special efficacy due to the power of the sacrament. So to, to admit a penance after confession or to do it sloppily, to, to admit it's actually sinful if you do it deliberately, to do it sloppily or to do it carelessly, to do it quickly in, in sort of a, a haphazard way, I think that is a, is a very bad habit to have. It's, <laughs> you're really doing yourself not much of a favor, you're, you're hurting yourself. And one of the things that can actually, you can actually do if, if you are truly in a situation where you're able to do this is if a priest gives you a penance and confession, you can actually ask him to assign you a more stringent or large penance. So if the priest, for instance, tell, tells you, oh, say a rosary for your sins or say five Hail Marys, you can ask the priest for a larger penance as long as it's something that you're actually going to do. And it, once he assigns it to you as your penance, that is actually more efficacious than if you were to just do it on your own. Often, too, the priest will, will specify, as he's giving the absolution, one of the, the prayers in Latin, is that any good work you do as penance for your sin may, may, will be counted as, as, uh, as, a, as the penance of your confession. That's, that's one of the prayers the priest can say uh, as he absolves. So that, that's, that's probably the, the first thing, is to, to do your penance well. Obviously, confess the sin first, because that's... <laughs> without, without that, you probably still have the eternal punishment due to sin. 
But once the sin had been confessed, to, to faithfully perform the penance and to do it to the very best of your ability and not put it off or do it sloppily, that, that is probably the, the best way to, to satisfy for temporal punishment due to sin. Then you have indulgences as well. Indulgences are the equivalent of doing a certain amount of canonical penance in, in the early days of the church. You, you read about uh, public sinners, so for instance, someone who committed murder or someone who committed adultery. They would be excluded from the church. They would stand outside of the church in sackcloth and ashes, which is a, sort of a carryover from the Old Testament idea of doing penance by putting on sackcloth and ashes as, as a sign of penance and mourning. So the people would be standing outside the church for a specific period of time, and they would be wearing sackcloth and ashes. The, the whole congregation would see them standing out there. Everyone would know that they were a sinner. And they would essentially beg the people going into the church to, to pray for them. And so they would stand outside of the church on Mass on Sunday, and they would beg everyone who goes in or comes out to pray for them uh, that they will be, that their sins will be forgiven. And then they would also be fasting and doing other penances, uh, sometimes even eating just bread and drinking water during a, spe a specific time. So you, you would say perhaps, you know, for 30 days or 70 days, sometimes a whole year, sometimes three years. It really depended on, on the sin. Uh, in the early days of the church, there was a much, in a sense, much less human respect with regard to what is due for the punishment that is due for sins committed. And so most, most people in our own day would find, would find the idea of standing outside the church and sat off and ashes in front of all of their friends and relatives to be just a little too hard. <laughs> and so most people would not, would not accept that. So in her wisdom, the mother church has given us indulgences. And so a, a, temp, a partial indulgence is, You'll, you'll generally read in the prayer book an indulgence of 100 days or an indulgence of seven years and seven quarantines or an indulgence of three years, indulgence of a specific period of time. And what that is, is the equivalent, so let's say it's a, it's a simple prayer and it has an indulgence of 100 days. By saying that prayer with the proper intentions, which is to be in the state of grace, and to have the intention of gaining the indulgences. You actually have to have the intention, at least the very general intention of gaining indulgences. So it's, it's a very good idea to, at the beginning of the day when you wake up, or even to have a, just a general idea, I want to gain as many indulgences as I can. Because if you don't think about it, you don't, or you don't have the intention of doing it, you don't actually gain the indulgence. So you could be have been doing something your whole life, just, well, for the sake of doing it, and then you find out later that there's an indulgence. If you don't, at least in a very general sense, intend to gain indulgences, you don't. So it's a very good intention to make even before First Communion or when a child achieves the use of reason that the parents ensure that the child understands uh, the general idea behind indulgences and how useful they are and that the, the vaguest of vague intentions of gaining the indulgence is sufficient. You don't have to say, I wish to gain the indulgence of 100 days that is applicable to this prayer that I'm going to say in the next 10 minutes. It doesn't have to be a specific intention. It can be something very general, but the intention does have to be there. 
So you have the, the, the indulgence of 100 days. What that would be the equivalent of is by saying that one little prayer or doing some act of piety, it is the equivalent of standing in front of the church in sackcloth and ashes for those 100 days. Now, it's the equivalent, which means that even if you were to stand outside the front of the church in sackcloth and ashes, but you stood in the shade and you did it so you wouldn't be too uncomfortable or you did it on days when nobody was going to be there or things like that. So that it's the equivalent of doing penance. Whether you do it well or improper or poorly will have the same effect as if you did that penance well or poorly. So it's not something like saying, well, this, is, this will cut off 100 days in purgatory or this will cut off a year in purgatory or this will cut off three years in purgatory. It, the the amount of satisfaction that is, or temporal punishment due to sin that is remitted through the application of the indulgence depends on the dispositions of the person who's gaining the indulgence. So the, it's, it's very important to try to, to, uh, to keep both the intention of gaining the indulgence and to be very careful to obtain the indulgence properly. And you have, you have also, uh, that was the partial indulgences, which, which removes some of the temporal punishment due to sin. But you also have the, the plenary indulgence, which is a remission of all of the temporal punishment due to sin. Usually the, the, the work involved with a plenary indulgence is a little bigger. Obviously, the, the result is, is uh, in proportion, so usually the result is, is bigger. Some, usually, though, you can gain some very simple, it's very easy to gain a plenary indulgence. But at the same time, the efficacy of that indulgence is somewhat subject to your dispositions and your intentions. So there are, and you have to fulfill the requirements. Most commonly, you are required to go to uh, sacramental confession and communion within a week of uh, actions. Probably the most common one is the, the Stations of the Cross, making the Stations of the Cross, usually which is a, a Friday night thing, at least in this country during Lent. One of the conditions for gaining the plenary indulgence, which is attached to that, is sacramental confession and communion within the week. And so that's another uh, sort of argument in favor of going to confession on a regular basis, <laughs> is that many times, unless you go to confession, you can't gain all the indulgences that you could gain, which is, in a sense, wasting your own time. So it, it might be might be worthwhile to, to go to confession more regularly. So, so you have you have the the indulgences, you have the, the sacramental penance imposed in confession. Uh, then you have essentially penances that you impose upon yourself, which generally should be done with the the at least the consent of your confessor, especially if it's something something big like fasting on bread and water or uh, doing an all-night vigil before a statue of Our Lady or something like that. You should generally ask the, the, the advice of your confessor whether or not such and such a penance is, is good for you. And your confessor will probably be able to tell you that no, you, you're not going to, to go through <laughs> you're not going to go through with this, so you might as well just not begin. Uh, because it's better to, to, to not do it than to do it poorly or wrongly. And so the, the confessor will give you advice. You can even ask the confessor, I, I'm interested in doing a sort of an extracurricular penance. Uh, for my sins, so you know, what, some, what are some of the things that you can suggest? And quite often the, the confessor will suggest something that is 
either a direct remedy or a very good deterrent from the sins that you've just confessed to him. Uh, so if, for instance, you have a problem with the sin of gluttony or drunkenness, most likely your confessor will ask you, will tell you that you should do a little bit of fasting or abstinence, something that's, something that's the opposite of the, the sin that you're having difficulty with. Uh, if, if you have a problem with anger, he may tell you that you need to not say anything when somebody talks to you, you know, hold your breath for five seconds or something, that will be your penance. And so it will usually be in, in some sort of relation to the sins that you've just confessed to the priest in, in confession. But at, at the same time, those will be very useful for you then because they're tailored to you rather than you read the life of a saint and you read such and such a saint scourged himself to blood every day and he fasted on bread and water and he had a rock for his pillow and he slept on the hard ground and there was no heat and it was freezing cold or it was boiling hot or he didn't eat for 40 days. And you, you read things like that in the lives of the saints and uh, a, a less... Um, an impractical person or a rash person might, oh, I'm going to do that, I'm going to, to scourge myself to blood every day, and I'm going to be just like St. Benedict or St. Francis of Assisi. And your, your confessor will probably tell you that that's not a good idea. And, but at the same time, he will give you a, a very useful alternative that, that is more doable. And you, you will actually gain more merit from being obedient to your confessor. So it may be actually more meritorious for you to not eat dessert once a week than to, to, in obedience to your confessor than to scourge yourself to blood every day. Uh, so that, that is very useful doing, doing penance as well. Uh, even the reception of the sacraments, Holy Communion especially, is a very good remedy for the temporal punishment due to sin uh, if the communion is received worthily. If it's received unworthily, of course, it is not going to do any good for remitting the temporal punishment due to sin. And if it's, even if it's received somewhat worthily with not quite the best dispositions, that will, it has a, a certain medicinal effect that your fervor will, or should, constantly increase the more you frequent the sacraments worthily. Uh, so obviously not in a state of worse sin. And you, you try to do the best preparation that you can every, every time you receive the Eucharist, of course. But you will most likely not be in ecstasy or levitating on your way to the communion rail as you go up to communion. But that just because you have committed, let's say, a venial sin since your last confession, that should not be a deterrent for receiving communion, but rather the more fervently you receive communion, quite often both those the guilt of those sins and the temporal punishment due to those sins is in fact remitted by the worthy reception of holy communion. So that is also a very efficacious means of remitting temporal punishment due to sin, is the frequent reception of Holy Communion. Other, others general, other categories generally are reduced to either penance or almsgiving, which is a form of penance in, in the sense that you, you give away something that you've, you've worked on very hard to get, or you have uh, done something difficult to acquire and you're giving it away out of the virtue of charity and the fact that you're doing it out of charity is what makes it worthwhile not out of a desire of being seen or helping people for purely natural motives but the fact that it's out of charity 
out of love for God that you are giving away something or giving your time even is a form of almsgiving. And the fact that you are doing that out of charity is, is very efficacious for the remission of temporal punishment due to sin. So there's lots, lots, of, uh, <laughs> lots of work to do, Father. Yes, just about anything at all that you do in the state of grace is, is a way to, to uh, remit temporal punishment due to sin. And our last question today will be, will there be a purgatory after the general judgment? No, and that's actually, it's, it's, a, it's a very, if you think about it, it's a very obvious thing, because after the general judgment, there will be only heaven and hell. The reason for this is that after the general judgment, all of the sins in purgatory will be expiated for. You will either have fulfilled all of the punishment due, or you will have a very intense purgatory, so let's say you, you die right at the end of the world, but you have a lot of sins on your soul, a lot of temporal punishment due to sin, your purgatory will be very intense, but it will be very short. Uh, so that there is always the idea of finality with the final judgment, the fact that there's, it's setting, as in a sense as we'd say in common speaking, is setting in stone your lot forever. So... The only way that you would have a purgatory after the final judgment is if you were going to be in purgatory forever. And to, to be in purgatory forever is actually to be in hell. So it's, uh, it's in, a, in a very basic sense. Uh, it just it makes no sense to have, to have a purgatory after the final judgment because to be, to be there forever, as I said, is, 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 would be hell because in purgatory the, the souls are deprived of the vision of God, which is what constitutes the, the joy of the blessed in heaven. So it is the, uh, yes, there, there's, there's no more reason for purgatory to exist after, after the final judgment. Well, Father, as we close out this episode, we have covered the particular judgment, general judgment, and purgatory. And I want to thank Father Eldrak for his time and being with us on this episode. Uh, is there anything else, Father, you'd like to add in summary before we close out our episode? I think we've, we've covered everything in a very general and vague sense. Of course, you could, you could spend a whole season probably just talking about purgatory and all of the things that, that could be done for the souls in purgatory, the things that... that and I suppose, actually, I, I would like to add that, that it's a very, very useful thing and a very good, pious devotion to have, to, to have a devotion for the souls in purgatory, to the souls in purgatory, actually. And... To, to try to gain indulgences for them. You, there are very, very many indulgences that are applicable to the, the poor souls in purgatory. And the, the sad thing of purgatory is, is that once you're in purgatory, you can no longer merit for yourself. So if you do penance for yourself here on earth while you're still alive, you're helping yourself. But once, once you're in purgatory, it's like becoming paralyzed. You can't you can't do anything to, to help yourself as far as loosening the, le lessening the time that you will be in purgatory or easing the pain of your suffering. So that, that's all left to either just the f sitting in purgatory essentially and fulfilling your sentence or the, the charity and generosity of the, the faithful on earth. And so it's a very, very useful and in a sense, it's almost selfish devotion to, to, to have 
for the poor souls of purgatory, to pray for them often, to gain indulgences for them. Because if through your efforts their punishment is lessened or their time in purgatory is shortened or perhaps they will even enter, be permitted to enter heaven much earlier, even while you are still alive, they will spend their, their entire heaven praying for you and trying to obtain as many graces for you as possible so that you yourself both will, will be able to enter heaven, but at the same time will have no time in purgatory yourself because the, the, the worst suffering that you can imagine, even being burnt alive or something in a furnace on, on this earth, uh, even dying during the three days of darkness, I think we spoke about earlier, <laughs> the, the worst thing that you can imagine is nothing in compared to the least of the least sufferings in purgatory because the right now all of the, the pain that we can suffer is related to the body and there's, there's only so much pain the body can take before it just shuts down and dies but the soul there's no limits the and so you you will you've probably experienced yourself that an emotional suffering is a hundred times worse or a thousand times worse than any physical suffering that you could go through and the the suffering in purgatory is is a spiritual in a sense emotional it's an intellectual suffering and that is the most acute of all sufferings. And so the souls in purgatory whom you assist are extremely grateful. There, there's no, no, really no comparison with it in, on this earth. It's, there's no way to, to draw a true analogy as to how grateful they will be. So to, to do, even just a, to have a devotion of doing perhaps the, uh, the prayer eternal restaurant unto them, O Lord, on a regular basis, even once a day, even that will will have a, an effect on on uh, the souls in purgatory, and they will be very very grateful to you, and they will assist you as much as they are able to from that. And one can go really to there's no limit to the to the amount of good works that one can do for the holy souls in purgatory. Uh, it goes so far even as to what is called the, the heroic act. Uh, for the Holy Souls in Purgatory, in which you or a person would d essentially give up all of the, the temporal, the satisfaction that one does for temporal punishment due to sin to the Holy Souls in Purgatory. So you, it is essentially to say, everything that I do is for the release of the Holy Souls in Purgatory, and I am willing to take their place uh, for them in Purgatory so that they can go to heaven sooner. And when you first think of that, it seems to be, uh, I've, someone called it spiritual suicide, that, that, you're, <laughs> that you're abandoning all hope that, that you'll get out of purgatory and you're going to be essentially in purgatory until the end of time. But that's not really the way it works because let's say that you, you have released perhaps by that, making that act and all of the good works that one can do as a result of that, because every indulgence that you ever gain is there is immediately applied to the poor souls, even if normally it is not applicable to the poor souls. So every every good work that a person who makes this act does is applicable to the holy souls. And so you are essentially, instead of, instead of uh, satisfying for your own sins, you're satisfying in the most perfect way that you can for the sins of others. 
And so there's, there's a very great uh, merit in that, and that is taken into consideration with the amount of relief that is accorded to the police source from, from someone who has made this act. And so the, the amount of relief that someone in this situation could do for the holy souls is so great that the holy souls will be so, so extremely grateful to that person, their benefactor, that in a sense, you can almost expect a very, very short purgatory as a result of, of, this, of this act, even though you have relinquished all right of the, the temporal, the satisfaction that you've made in favor of the Holy Souls in Purgatory. So I think that that is something that I, I would recommend and, and like to, like people to take away from, from this, from this episode is, is that a devotion to the Holy Soul in Purgatory is one of, one of the best devotions that one could have. Eternal rest granted in the Lord, let the light shine upon them, may they rest in peace. Amen. Well, Father, thank you for taking, again, uh, this time uh, during uh, this busy week of yours, uh, being newly ordained, and, and now um, also uh, we had a little interview with you for uh, Terrestration Media that we look forward to seeing as well. Uh, hopefully you're, you're going to have some relief now. <laughs> well, if I don't have relief, I can offer it for the Holy Souls. That's right, Father. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a pleasure to be here, and I'm, I'm glad to, to be joining the, the group of Restoration Radio. Well, once again, Father, thank you for your time, and we will talk to you again next time as we continue this series. God bless you. The same to you. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email questions at truerestoration.org. We want to remind you that This is Catholicism is a production of member-supported Restoration Radio. All rights are reserved, and any, any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to copyright at truerestoration.org. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful, and beneficial to you and to your faith. And in return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Jason Gordiano. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.